Dear Lord God, thank you for your word. The Bible blesses us now as we read and listen. Help us to learn and obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Our Bible reading this morning is from Galatians 1, verses 1 through 10. Paul, an apostle, sent neither by human commission nor from human authorities, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the members of God's family who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to set us free from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are confusing you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should proclaim to you a gospel contrary to what we proclaim to you, let that one be accursed. As we have said before, so now I repeat, if anyone proclaims to you a gospel contrary to what you received, let that one be accursed. Am I now seeking human approval or God's approval? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still pleasing people, I would not be a servant of Christ. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Kobe and Ron. Today is the second Sunday of Easter, and I wanted to remind you uh, that Easter is not just one day on the church calendar. Uh, Easter is a 50-day feast. If you observed uh, Lent uh, in some way this year, uh, you, you may have been intentional about renewing a spiritual practice like prayer or Bible reading. Uh, you may have practiced fasting or, or given up uh, something to, to make time to seek the Lord. Uh, I don't think we often think about the Easter season in this same kind of way, but I think maybe we should. If Lent is about giving things up, uh, Easter should be about focusing on joy, being intentional about not uh, perhaps taking on heavy burdens, uh, making space in our lives for celebrating, for rejoicing in the good news that Jesus is alive. What would it look like for us to approach these 50 days of Easter in that spirit? Why is it that we're drawn maybe more easily to the practice of Lent than to the practice of an Easter feast? This is why we're beginning a, a new series today, on Paul's letter to the Galatians. We all have a tendency to forget the good news, to fall back on old patterns, to make our faith a burden rather than a celebration and an invitation to live in a new way of freedom and love. 
This is why Paul wrote this letter, why it's such a gift to the church, because it helps Christians who, who need to be reminded all the time about what makes the good news so good. We all need to hear this message because we all fall back on, on old ways. Notice in this uh, passage that we just read that, that Paul speaks to the believers to whom he is writing in two rather different tones in these opening verses of the letter. On the one hand, in verses 1 to 5, he speaks a message of grace and peace to them. And on the other hand, in verses 6 to 10, he speaks words of astonishment to them about what is happening in their community. We're going to talk about the astonishment next week, uh, but this week I want to focus on the, the first five verses uh, and why Paul begins here. And Paul has some hard things to say uh, to the church uh, in this letter uh, about what they're, they're in danger of, of, of losing, but he also puts first things first, and, and we want to hear what those are. Uh, we want to do the same thing as we consider what it means to, to celebrate Easter, not just as one day uh, on uh, our calendars, but as a lifestyle. There are three things for us to be reminded about here today. First, because Jesus is alive, we have a new starting point for all of life. Second, because Jesus is alive, we have a new story, a story that centers on God's self-giving love and the person of his son. And finally, because Jesus is alive, we have a new destiny for the future. We, we know the end of the story, and it's good. Let me, let me show you how each of these uh, flows from our text today. First, because Jesus is alive, uh, because he's risen from the dead, we have a new starting point. Paul begins uh, his letter in a very conventional way by identifying himself first as the sender, but then he expands on who he is right away uh, to get out there uh, for, for this church, what is most important to him, who he is, and, and what he believes. He says, Paul, an apostle, sent neither by human commission nor from human authorities, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. What's really interesting here is that if you read through the rest of this letter, and I hope that you will, it'd be a good thing to do this week. We're going to be spending a long time over the next couple of months in Galatians, and it'd be a great thing for you to do, to read it. It'll only take you probably... 25 minutes or so. But if you do that, you, you read through the letter, you won't find another direct reference to the resurrection. It's really interesting, isn't it? And yet he starts with it right here in the opening verse. You will find lots of allusions to it as you go through the letter, and we're going to talk about those, but the resurrection itself isn't mentioned again. Why? Well, in a sense... Paul didn't need to mention it again because the resurrection was his starting point for everything that he said. If Jesus was alive, it meant that he was victorious, that his words were true, that the world was a different kind of place because he had risen from the dead, that God had acted in history. 
And if it's true, then it also must be the starting point for our own thinking about everything. The author Marilyn Robinson gets at this idea in uh, a quote that you'll find on the Reflections page today. Uh, she writes, I have a theory that the churches fill on Christmas and Easter because it is on these days that the two most startling moments in the Christian narrative can be heard again. The, the incarnation and the resurrection. What gives them their power? They tell us that there is a great love that has intervened in history, making itself known in terms that are startlingly and inexhaustibly palpable to us as human beings. They are tales of love, lovingly enacted once and afterward cherished and retold. By the grace of God, certainly, because they are, after all, the narrative of an obscure life in a minor province. Caesar Augustus was also said to be divine, and there aren't any songs about him. God is of a kind to love the world extravagantly, wondrously, and the world is of a kind to be worth, which is not to say worthy of, this pained and rapturous love. If we understand this to be true, what response do we make? How do we act? How do we live? We respond by loving the world God loves, presumably. A great love has intervened in history. Let's start there, friends. There's so much pressure in our world to begin with what's wrong. But that's not how the whole Bible begins, is it? It starts in Genesis 1 with the goodness of God's creation. It doesn't start in Genesis 3 with the fall. And the gospel begins not with judgment, but with grace revealed in the death and resurrection of Jesus. When we make the resurrection the starting point for all of life, it means that we remember the power of God's love to overcome any obstacle. We have a new starting point in all our relationships, in all our struggles. Every day we can come back to this, to this truth that Jesus is risen, that he is alive. This doesn't mean that Christians avoid suffering or injustice or death, but it means that those realities are no longer ultimate because Jesus is alive. The theologian Craig Kuster says, a theology of resurrection means confessing without qualification that death is real. It also means believing that death is not final. For Christians, the, the starting point is this awareness that whatever difficulty or, or hardship or conflict that we face in this world, if Jesus is alive, then it's no match for the power of God. Our response in the whole of our lives is always rooted in what God has done first uh, for us and for the world in the person of his son. This brings us to our second point today. Uh, because Jesus is alive, we don't just have a, a new starting point, we have a whole new story. This is the story that Paul tells in verses 3 and 4. 
grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to set us free from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. In this story, there is something deeply wrong. Paul calls it the present evil age. And it's important to see what Paul means here if we're going to understand its place uh, in the narrative. Uh, Notice that, that Paul does not talk about the present evil world but an evil age, and, and I, I think the, the difference is important. The problem is not uh, that this world itself is evil, and the goal is to find some escape from it. As I said earlier, the, God made the world, he made it good, and there continues to be goodness and, and beauty in the world. But it's also twisted and, and, and corrupted in, in many ways because of the fall. Socially, psychologically, physically, we, we all know uh, what that looks like. The, the present evil age is the broken world we live in every day. Uh, the, the world of gun violence and of war and revenge and racism and corruption and greed, selfishness. The Bible invites us to face those realities honestly and directly, to be deeply realistic about the presence of injustice and sin. Uh, to name the, the present evil age is to name the reality of evil when we are tempted to overlook it or to deny it in ourselves or in the world, in others. It doesn't mean giving up on the world, but it, it gives us a way to make sense of the world so that we can deal with these kinds of problems. So how do we deal with it? How do we deal with evil and and wrongdoing? The theologian Miroslav Volf has made the point that because we live in a moral reality, there are only two ways that we might neutralize evil, that we might deal with it. First, if we could somehow undo what has been done, but we can't. Uh, When someone uh, says something unkind to us, uh, we will sometimes say, take that back. That's not really possible. There's no way to take back something that has been said. If we say, okay, I didn't mean it, our words still remain spoken. We could all think of things that we've said or done that we regret, and about which we wish that we we could turn back the clock, but we can't. Wolf says, our life isn't a motion picture in which we can, like a discerning editor, run a bad scene backward, cut it out, and keep replacing it with better ones until we are pleased with the result and are ready to show it to a critical audience. Our lives don't have a reverse button. Time only runs forward. We can do new deeds, but we can't undo old ones. And so that's the, the first way we might deal with the problem, and, and it's, it's not really possible. The, the second way that we might neutralize wrongdoing is if what we did wrong didn't stick to us as our fault, as our guilt. Now, Wolf uses an example of this, uh, the example of a shark. 
He says, uh, you know, imagine a shark sees a surfer on a surfboard and mistakes him for a seal and bites off his leg. Now, the surfer loses his leg. Should he forgive the shark? No, <laughs> because the shark was just doing what sharks do. They see something good to eat, and they try to eat it. You can't really blame it, can you? Uh, it would be different if a friend had brought that surfer to a beach that he knew was shark-infested. He just knew the water was full of sharks, and he didn't warn his friend of the danger at all. He said, hey, I think you should go surfing uh, in that water, uh, knowing there, was, there were sharks there. Then the surfer would have been wronged by his friend, right? His friend would be guilty. What he'd, what he'd done would cling to him uh, as a guilt. And his friend could choose to forgive him, to give him the gift of not holding that wrong against him, letting it go. This is what God has done for us in the person and work of Jesus. Paul says he gave himself for our sins to set us free from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. He's made it possible for us to be forgiven. Notice two things here. First, at the heart of this gift, is the self-sacrificial offering of Jesus for our sins. Verse 4 says that he gave himself for our sins. He offered the gift of his life for us. This reflects how Jesus himself describes his mission in Mark 10.45, where he says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. To pay the ransom, to, to give himself for our sins, means that there was a cost uh, that needed to be paid in order to set us free from sin and death. But Jesus was willing to pay that cost for us. But also notice, and this is the second point, that Jesus acted in accord with the will of our God and Father. It shows that, that Jesus and God the Father are in perfect harmony about this plan to save and to redeem sinners. In, in Galatians, Paul says, Jesus gave himself to set us free. Uh, but in other places, like in John 3.16, the Bible can also say that God gave Jesus to save us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Which one was it? Did Jesus give himself? Or did God the Father give his son? Well, it's both. The story of the Bible centers on the sacrificial, self-giving love of God revealed in the person and work of Jesus. So we've said that because Jesus is alive, we have a new starting point. Because Jesus is alive, we also have a new story, the story of the victory of God's love over evil and death and sin. One last point today. Because Jesus is alive, we have a new destiny. We know the end of the story. 
and it's good. We hear this assurance in Paul's words of grace and peace to this troubled church. Here, Paul doesn't suggest that grace and peace might be possible for them if they could just get their act together. He declares grace and peace. Just like uh, uh, I do every week as we gather for worship, you know that moment in the service we call it God's greeting, and we begin our services in, in exactly the same way, modeled after Paul here, declaring grace and peace as we gather for worship. This grace and peace is not a subjective feeling. We come here every week, I know, from all sorts of different places and struggles and difficulties in our lives, and that, that declaration of grace and peace is meant to remind us that the foundation of our worship is not how we're feeling, it's the objective reality of God's grace and peace based on what he's done for us in Christ. It's an objective status. If you have grace and peace, you know that you've been rescued, that you're accepted and loved by God, not because of what you have done, but because of what he has done for you. In Christ, he has set you free. He has rescued you. As we're going to see next week, Paul is very anxious about these Galatians uh, to whom he's writing. He's worried for the survival of this infant church, and he's going to have strong words for them. But here at the beginning, he doesn't hesitate to speak a word of grace and peace to them. This is a good lesson for us. We need to be willing to do the same thing. Uh, for each other, for those we love, in friendship, in marriage, in parenting. We remind one another that no matter what our guilt or shame, it's no match for the resurrection power of God. He declares grace and peace to you. Let me close today with uh, one of the most powerful stories I've heard about this kind of declaration of grace and peace. It's about a pastor and a professor of church history at Luther Seminary named Jim Nestingen. And Jim is a huge six-foot-six Minnesotan. And as the story goes, Jim was boarding a plane to fly coast to coast when he saw that he would be sharing a row with a man just as big as him sitting in the next seat. And so they awkwardly wedged up against one another and exchanged niceties, uh, preparing for this long-haul plane trip, basically sitting in one another's laps. And in response to the obligatory job question, uh, Jim said, I am a preacher of the gospel. He must not want to have conversation during the trip. Uh, that's what would have happened to me. Uh, but the man next to him uh, responded loudly, uh, almost allergically, I am not a believer. <laughs> and Jim assured him that that was okay, and they kept talking. And it, it turned out that this man had been an infantryman in the Vietnam War. And ever since, uh, he'd carried with him all the awful things that he'd, he'd seen and, and he'd done in the war. And as the plane flew from one end of the country to the other, the man uh, dumped out his entire story 
into the lap of uh, his seatmate. And when he had finished, Jim asked the man, have you confessed all the sins that have been troubling you? The man balked, confess? I haven't confessed anything. Jim boomed back. You've been confessing your sins to me this whole flight long. And I've been commanded by Christ Jesus that when I hear a confession like that, to hand over the goods and speak a particular word to you. So do you have any more sins burdening you? If so, throw them in there. To which the man balked again, no, that's all, but I'm not a believer. I don't have any faith in me. Jim unbuckled his seatbelt mid-landing and stood over the man, which caused quite a, a stir with the flight crew. Uh, well, that's quite all right, brother, he said. Jesus says that it's what's inside of you is what's wrong with the world. I'm going to speak faith into you. And he proceeded with the absolution. In the name of Jesus Christ and by his authority, I declare the entire forgiveness of all your sins. Flabbergasted, the man balked again. You can't do that. Uh, and Pastor Jim responded, I can, and I just did, and I will do it again. And he did. In the name of Jesus Christ and by his authority, I declare the entire forgiveness of all your sins. The man began weeping uncontrollably until finally he began laughing uncontrollably all the way down the tarmac to the gate. And as the two men were grabbing their overhead luggage, Jim grabbed the man's hand and gave him his card and said, you're likely not going to believe your forgiveness tomorrow or the next day or a week from now. When you stop having faith in it, call me and I'll bear witness to you all over again and I'll keep doing it until you do. You really do trust and believe it. The man did. Uh, he called him, I'm told, every day until the day he died, just to hear the declaration spoken over him in Christ Jesus. Surrendering to this absolution became something he couldn't live without. Friends, because Jesus is alive, we can have the same boldness to declare grace and peace to the world. When you believe that this grace belongs to you because of what Jesus has accomplished in his death and resurrection, then you have a resource and a treasure that has the potential to transform every area of your life. When you know God's suffering, self-sacrificial love is for you, and you can go through the most difficult things without fear. You know that your circumstances are not a, a sign that God is displeased with you. You don't have to be afraid of letting go of control. You can love others sacrificially. You can give generously. Not because of what you get in return, but just as an expression of gratitude and, and joy. a way to be more like Jesus, who was willing to give up everything, even his life, for you.
You have a hope that transcends anything this world can offer because you know that the, the, the decisive victory has been won. You know the end of the story. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Let's believe it together. Let's pray. Gracious God, we do thank you for the reminder of your grace and your peace revealed to us in Christ. We do pray that uh, you would grant us faith to, to believe it, to trust it every day, and to hold it out as a gift uh, to the world. Uh, may we be encouraged uh, in the details of our lives uh, to reflect that grace and that love to those around us. Uh, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.